0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. In addition to hosting Scholarly Communication, I'm the founder and CEO of Academic Language Experts, an author services company dedicated to helping scholars elevate their manuscripts prior to publication and grant proposals to receive research funding. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Mushtaq Bilal. Mushtaq Bilal is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Southern Denmark's Hans Christian Andersen Center. He holds a PhD in comparative literature from Binghamton University. His work has appeared in prestigious academic journals, such as the Journal of World Literature and Comparative Literature Studies, as well as in popular publications like the Washington Post and the LA Times. Mushtaq has an online audience of more than 185,000 followers on Twitter, no, I did not misspeak, and more than 30,000 followers on LinkedIn, where he writes about simplifying the process of academic writing. He is frequently invited to deliver talks at leading universities in the US, Europe, and South Asia. His Twitter threads have been translated into Portuguese, Japanese, Spanish, Basha, Indonesian, and are forthcoming in several others. He lives in Odense, Denmark. Um, Mushtaq, thank you so much for joining me today. I'd, I have to say, I'm really excited for this interview.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you, Avi. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. Fantastic.
0: And I, I can actually tell our audience that the reason that I uh, came across Mushtaq was because there were so many people in my LinkedIn feed who were sharing his posts, and, and I think that's probably the best sign. Uh, for you know, real organic success is when people want to share content. So um, you know, it's it's uh, well deserved. So, but maybe let's let's. I want to take a step back for a minute, and you can take me back um, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic background.
1: Yeah, about myself, um, I uh, I was born in Pakistan. I worked there for. Um, for- you know, for the first 30, 32 years of my life. And then I got a grant to do my PhD um, in Binghamton University, New York. And then I went there, um, left the, you know, left the job that I was doing um, at the time. And then I went to the US, um, started my PhD, finished my PhD in 2022 last year, and then moved back to Pakistan for a few months, um, before getting my postdoc and then I moved to onsa here in Denmark uh, just before the start just before Christmas last year
0: Wow fantastic
1: and and tell us kind of maybe
0: how did you get you know where you obviously have a strong academic background and and it sounds like you're still quite heavily involved in you know research um, I guess, how did you go from just kind of doing research for yourself and figuring things out on your own to thinking, well, maybe I should share some of what I'm learning along the way uh, with others?
1: Yeah, it was um, when I submitted my dissertation last year, last April, my wife said that I should go on Twitter. And um, before that, before my wife asked me to go, you know, to make an account, I I used to be really horrified of of Twitter and social media in general. And you know, I I understand when people tell me that you know they don't want to be on Twitter or on any social media platform, um, because there is this stereotypical image of social media as 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 a toxic cesspool. So I had that stereotypical image, and but my wife really you know forced me to. She literally stood next to my desk and you know she made me open an account on twitter and then i realized that um once i started my account on twitter it took me like two to three days to post a tweet i didn't know what to do with it but then i thought to myself that hey mushtaq you have a phd in um, comparative literature and my dissertation is on the genre of novel so and i have a fairly good understanding of how genres literary genres you know, worked, especially during the 19th century in various parts of the world. So I said to myself, hey, Mushtaq, how about you treat Twitter as a literary genre and try to figure it out? And from then on, from there on, I was able to extrapolate, you know, whatever I had learned was very portable, you know, because all the things that uh, I had learned in literary theory, I could easily apply to good use uh, on Twitter. And I very quickly figured out it was you know, like in a couple of months I was able to figure out I was able to deconstruct how Twitter works how content on Twitter works and the good thing about Twitter um, is that it's a text-based platform one of the very few text-based platforms in you know which is which has such a global reach if you look at other platforms like YouTube or TikTok with such a big reach or even Facebook they are um, not text-based, you know, they're partially text-based when it comes to a platform like Facebook. But with Twitter, it's mostly text-based and that is, you know, that really helped me, um, you know, transfer my skills, writing skills that I, I had developed while uh, doing my PhD to an online platform. So I started writing about, yeah, go ahead so i started writing about my own processes um during my phd i had uh, i had taken a, a bunch of writing workshops and you know seminars on the process of writing and so i said that you know if i write about the 19th century novel no not many people are going to read about that because that's you know really dense literary theory but I, if i write about the writing process how how you uh, conceive a project develop a project you know draft it revise it seek feedback on it that would be you know very useful for uh, for my colleagues and especially for for people who were just starting their phds and i started writing about that and then i went to pakistan and then i uh, wanted to teach my students zotero uh, the reference management system the the app and I prepared a tutorial for them, and I didn't have access to the online um, learning management system, the LMS the university was using. So I said, um, well, it'll take a, a week or so to get me access, so how about I post the tutorial on my Twitter? And I posted the tutorial, and it went, like, viral. It was, I had, like, 3,000, I think 3,000 or 4,000 followers, 5,000 max followers at the time and the twitter thread went viral it was like two to three million views and you know for it it didn't stop for the next 48 hours and i was so surprised i was like my god this is this is a tutorial about how to reference you know how to create citations and references and there are so many people who want to learn so that got me you know into that really opened my my eyes to this kind of content that you know there is a market for this kind of content people want to learn and you know i could i could write this and so that's how that's the long and short of it not the long but the short of it
0: (laughs) yeah no it's it's amazing i think there's two uh, there's so many things that are amazing about that story two things that jump out to me one is the fact that you actually saw how you could use your theoretical academic background for social which i think is totally the exact opposite of what most academics I speak to say, well, you know, the so- being active on socials is so different from what I'm doing in my research that it just like almost feels like the opposite end of the spectrum. So the fact that you were able to kind of take that and run with it is A. And then B, what I think is amazing is that I think it just comes to show us how desperate researchers are to understand best practices with writing and how I guess we're failing to teach academic writing in a way that's modern and contemporary and meaningful and practical to the point where people are searching for these alternative um, sources of, of, you know, helpful uh, content, which clearly you're supplying them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think the, the idea that, and I'm, I mean, I'm talking here from the perspective of somebody um, who, who didn't like this social media. I understand the place where these professors are coming from and that, And the place is that of rigidity and closed-mindedness. And the place is that of, you know, hey, we are doing this and we don't want to treat social media. Like this is the the conventional wisdom in academia is that social media is something beneath us that we talk in very high-minded or high language of literary scholarship or any scholarship, you know, uh, of research jargon. And that if we were to go and, post about it on social media, people will not understand. The tricky part here is that it takes an enormous amount of skill to distill your scholarly findings into a language that is comprehensible for non-specialists. It takes a lot of skill. And I I used to practice this when I was in Binghamton. I would go for a swim um, every morning. I would uh, I used to swim in early mornings and I would go to the y, YMCA and there people would sometimes, you know, you, when you go to a swimming pool like the Y, uh, you'll find a few regulars and, you know, you start talking about them and they'll ask you, hey, what do you do? And I used to take that opportunity to perfect my elevator pitch for my dissertation and it took months and months of you know iterations to bring down the elevator pitch to a level where it could be comprehensible outside of a comparative literature department. So so this is like if you become rigid that you know what I'm writing is high you know is is rarefied research and that people are not able to access that um, unless you initiate them into a scholarly discourse. I think that is. And, I mean, I, you can also understand it in in terms of, you know, protecting your turf. People want to protect their turf. That is also understandable. But then what somebody like me thinks is that, you know, then then you're not democratizing education or, you know, um, access to research. So this is one point. The second point, what was your uh, second point? Well, yeah, I would say... Saying and you are absolutely right 100% i am with you because the process of academic writing especially at the level of phd and dissertations and monographs is so mystified you 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 don't know how pro- i mean you go to um, a phd program and they're like hey you have to do this you have to write a dissertation how but how i mean everybody learns it by doing it so you so will you but this is not how it is done you know it's a um, there is a book by There's a book by, there's a book called Writing Your Journal Article in 12 Weeks. It is by writing your, let me, it is by Wendy Laura Belcher. And in the start of her book, she says that publishing a journal article or writing scholarship is a game. And you know, you have to know the rules of the game in order to play it. And that was a very, that was a big revelation for me. You know, you have to understand it in terms of a game. And if you do, then, you know, things become, start becoming demystified.
0: Yeah. It's so, yeah, it's the, there, there's so much truth to that. I, I found that when I started speaking to lecturers, um, you know, about academic writing, there's one thing is understanding kind of the outline of what a typical article looks like, right? The IMRAD structure, if you're in the social sciences and, but there's so much more to publishing that has nothing to do with you know with the with that, but it has to do with unwritten rules around this um, that are not really taught. Um, you know, I had a I had a, um, a, a an academic writing teacher write to me the other day because she couldn't figure out how to publish her article. Right, um, so there's this gap there between the writing and the publishing. Uh, but even in the writing sense, I think you're you're absolutely right. And 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 the other thing I wanted to to kind of follow up with you about is. It's interesting that you're, you're mentioning about making research accessible to others, but it seems like from your work online, it's even, it's yes, it is making research accessible to others, but it's also making that process easier for the researchers themselves to understand what the rules of that game are.
1: Yeah, To an extent, yes. Um, I mean, you, one has to be, one. I mean, somebody like me can write that this is how um, a, um, a piece of scholarship gets conceived and you know developed. For other researchers, other researchers will have to do two things if they want to you know make use of the content that somebody like me or other other you know um, uh, creators like like myself they do. One is to to be open to the possibility that you can learn something from Twitter or something from LinkedIn. That's a big, you know, that's a big mindset shift. That's a paradigm shift, you know, and I know this because I underwent this, you know, uh, uh, during the last, not uh, during the second half of uh, the last year. I underwent this and I realized that there is this huge, enormous opportunity that scholars Educators, teachers can use, and they, this for some reason they think that it's. If you talk about citing a YouTube video in your article, there are very high chances that nine times out of ten people will not take that citation very seriously, because people would be like, "Hey, what is YouTube?" You know, cite a uh, cite a general article from uh, I don't know new literary theory or you know, uh, diacritics or uh, comparative literature studies. So there is this intellectual snobbery, there is no doubt about it. Uh, if you can get past that, I think there's, there's an enormous possibility and, you know, opportunity for people like us and others to to help uh, democratize education.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you, especially within the context. I think, you know, we kind of, take it for granted that when we're talking about research and scholarship, we're talk, we're thinking about the people who have already succeeded, right? We're, we're generally thinking about the people who are at the top of their game. Well, they figured out the rules, so they had to work hard and and blood, sweat, and tears to get there. Well, then everyone should have to do that. But I, I, I think that we would all agree that, you know, when, when I, I read a, a stat that shocked me um, recently, which was that 50% of researchers publish one article and never publish again in their lives. Well, and then stop becoming researchers. I mean, maybe they get their PhD but they don't continue down the path. And I think that should give us some pause for thought to think about, well, is that because they all 50% of them had a great experience, but, you know, decided they want to do other things for their lives or did they actually, you know, did they see it as a, a challenge they couldn't overcome and a failure and therefore they couldn't, couldn't move on. But anyway, that's, that's, that's a question for another time. I, I'm curious if you can kind of think back about a post maybe that wasn't as successful or a post that you, you know, Uh, from the beginning of your time when you started posting where you're like, oh, you know what? I tried something out and it didn't work. Um, Are there any of those that you can kind of share with us that, and what learnings and, and, you know, kind of lessons you took away from those?
1: Yeah. Initially when I started writing, (laughs) there there weren't any posts that would, that people would find useful because when I started, I didn't know that, I didn't know how to orient myself on social media. My approach was um, me-centric. My approach was not the reader-centric and if you're writing something for self-pleasure or for you know telling the world how great you are uh, not many people are going to consume that kind of you know content or they're not going to find that content useful the it, it, it's not that what i learned out of those initial posts because i was writing and i was reading at the same time you know how other people who Big creators on you know uh, on Twitter, especially within the acad- um, academic Twitter, uh, I was looking at how those people are you know how how those people are creating content and the kind of content they were creating. So there is of course there is advice and you know recommendations and prescriptions on or how tos, but initially. Um, I think they, I, I wrote for months and months that, and none of the posts would go, go anywhere because uh, I was trying to figure it out. So, yeah, there were like a I I don't remember if I start list, <laughs> listing <them>. listing <laughs> it will take like 40 minutes. <laughs> All of 40 minutes would be consumed in in those, you know, in those failed posts.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting because I, I you know, I've seen a lot of I I actually was, you know, can share a similar story like i i you know have have written up posts that i thought would be very popular and and ended up like you know there's no no interest and you start asking yourself well am i not interesting or is the algorithm off and doesn't like me right um and i think that it takes you there's no way to start with being a popular poster i think it it, it sort of requires you to write it requires you to experiment and to play because it really has to touch a chord with the audience otherwise you're kind of ringing hollow um so you yeah, know I, for, I, for anyone who has tried and not worked i think it's it's worth continuing to try
1: i would say that you know if, if you this is I, I don't find you know after a year of creating content um i don't think it's a good idea to write a post with the idea of going viral because if you want to go viral or if you want to go reach a big audience you know in the start you're setting yourself up for failure initially i if if i were to advise my you know younger not younger my, but my you know myself of one year ago i would i would tell that mushtaq that you don't have to create and you know this is a this is a rule that i stick to to this day and i've seen many big creators also you know use this the idea should be to create a library of content and, you know, your content, it doesn't have to be, it. Uh, your post doesn't have to be super useful. It may not appear super useful in the first attempt. That's okay. We all, you know, there are, mul- we all have chances to iterate. But try to create an a library, a repository for yourself of content that, you know, there are 10, 20, 50 posts that I have, and then read them and see what's working and why and what's not working and why not, and then try to rewrite those posts. So, you know, it's a a process of continuous iterations that you should be very comfortable doing. I was very comfortable doing it because I knew the process. I, I had a very good understanding of how the process of academic writing worked I had taken a lot of seminars and workshops. So I knew that, you know, um, when I published my first article, it took like 10 drafts and like a year and a half. And uh, it was so much of, you know, rewriting it. And that journal article is not a Twitter thread of Twenty tweets it's like eight thousand words and then you send it out to reviewers and everybody has funny things to say and you know rewrite the structural changes i ended up rewriting like three four thousand words of it you know it was uh and and I, i didn't resent it but that really taught me a good you know good lesson that iteration work iterations work yeah
0: yeah yeah and i think the other thing is to keep in mind is is that you know Yes, you're, the numbers that you know. You have been that the number of followers and the number of people who are commenting and liking your posts are quite incredible. I mean, it's it's, it's um, you know it's a testament to to the quality. But not everyone needs to reach. It's not always about quantity, right? Um, if you have a very specific audience that you want to reach, um, you know, you're talking to all scientists. Um, you know, and, and all scientists can help. But it, you may be a researcher in you know modern history or in classics. And your goal is not to get you know folks from sociology to comment on your on, on on your post. It's really to 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 bring something of meaning and value to your specific audience and to your community um, in a meaningful way. If you want that community to be a wide tent, there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't have to be in order to be successful. And 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 you know as and, and maybe there's a good segue to ask you kind of you know what do you see as the price that you pay, whether it's in time or um you know energy how much time and energy do you put into you know these posts that you're working on and do you ever you know do you think it ever comes at the uh at the sort of um, you know at the expense um of your academic work or do you see it as complimentary
1: i'd say it's complimentary because uh, it, it, i mean it's complimentary but it it's definitely work it's not it's not something that you can say hey it's my hobby i get up um, and you know, if I'm feeling inspired, I'd write a thread. No, it's not. I mean, it's this is this is serious work. If you want to make yourself, if you want to provide value to your community, and I want to touch, you know, go back to uh, what you were saying earlier. The idea of building an online community is, you know, one way of thinking about building an audience is to not think about building an audience. You don't want, you know, every day. You 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 should not have this in the front and center of your mind that i'm building an audience no the idea should be that you're serving a community that community could be 10 people that's it not a big deal like for myself i have an avatar of a of a first year freshman sophomore undergraduate student who's willing smart intelligent and willing to learn from me that's the that's my ideal reader and i write for her or him that is the reader I write and so I that's one reason that my threads I I, my threads are never peevish my threads are never never trying to get get back at somebody or trying too hard to be you know to prove a point or being defensive because I'm imagining a very willing reader for my threads and that helps me you know, uh, keep that helps me stay grounded, but it also helps me helps me figure out that I'm I'm not writing this to build a community. Building a community or building an audience is a byproduct of the kind of value you will provide to that imagined reader. You know, you have to be sincere to that imagined reader, or and in a way to your own self. And if you stay sincere to that reader your community will would coalesce sooner or later you don't have to worry about and you know on in online communities or um in this kind of work growth is exponential i wrote for the for the first six for the first three to four months i had like 10 less than 10,000 followers. Then I wrote a trend on Zotero. It got me like 1,000 followers. Then I followed it up with another very lengthy tutorial that was like 30 tweets long. And that that brought me like 7,000 followers in a day. And the next day, I posted a thread in, in September, I think. The next day, that same thread was being talked about and discussed in classes in Denmark, in in, in, US, in the U.S., in Canada, in many other parts of the world. So I, I, what I would say is that, you know, forget about the numbers if you're starting out, forget about the numbers. You know, you should worry about the numbers. But once you have a sizable community, like if you have 100,000 followers on one of the platforms, then you should worry about numbers because now it's a different stage of the game. But initially, you should focus on providing quality content.
0: Okay. So I want to, I, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying, but I do want to push you a little bit and ask you now that you have been able to experience some success, now that you have been able to gain a following um what's the end goal for Mushtak, right meaning where where do you want to see this going um obviously continuing to create you know um you know helpful content and 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 reach researchers that need this help around the world but are, do you see this as something that you can actually pursue in uh you know career direction or do you see it as kind of um or are you still taking it day by day and you know seeing where it leads
1: yeah that's a that's a question that i can answer on two levels strategic and tactical so you know long term strategic would be my um, my own idea and that's why i'm a humanities scholar so uh, the good thing about being in a, being a humanities scholar is that whatever you learn or whatever you, the knowledge that you create is immediately applicable to the society that you're living in to your own self Of course, it would take, you know, um, a bit of work to figure out how to do that, how to how to apply that. Strategically, I I had always wanted to do something, some work along the lines of being, you know, public intellectual, somebody who has uh, one foot in academia and the other foot in public discourse and is able to marry the two fields and, you know, is able to communicate scholarly ideas that are grounded in rigorous research, but are also accessible to the to the public, general public. So, strategically, I would I would love to continue this work, and you know, if it helps me become uh, a public intellectual with the, with a bigger reach, that would be really wonderful. Uh, Technically, and I do take it take these things day at a time if you ask me on any given day what's your tomorrow's thread going to be about and i'll say i have no idea i don't worry about it i write a thread and you know in the evening i when i exercise i think about what what i should write about the next day then i take a shower you know mull it over in the morning i i get up early in the morning and then i i play around with a couple of ideas write a thread then forget about it. And then, you know, I do my own, you know, research and uh, house chores and other things. So I, I, I take it day by day, but there is also um, a strategic sort of um, a vision, you know, my personal vision. And I would love to be able to, you know, continue doing this kind of work because it, it, it's, it's far more meaningful to be read by thousands of people across the world than sitting in your room and writing a very rarefied piece of scholarship that only three people would read. I mean, there is, of course, there is a high in that also, that, you know, you're able to create such cutting-edge scholarship that, you know, that's right, um, that's so useful for your colleagues in the field. There is no doubt about it. Um, But that, you know, you also want to reach... Um, A larger audience. A lot of,
0: I you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the more recent success or the more recent um, strategic help that you've been giving people is really around AI. I wonder if you see AI as a way to bridge that gap in some ways between the theoretical, high level, highfalutin academics and the you know world, the the kind of um, moving past the ivory tower and being able to reach um, larger audiences.
1: Yeah the work that I'm doing around AI most of the work is comes out of the place or comes out of a place of concern because people and academia there are like there are two types of groups One group is very skeptical and, you know, they are like the AI is going to corrupt the system and we are not, we we won't be able to teach our students what writing is and writing is thinking and they're cheating and, you know, all that sort of skeptical or doomer sort of discourse. The other, uh, on the other end of the spectrum are early adopters of AI in academia, somebody like, you know, myself. And my concern is that sooner or later we are going to have to adapt and adopt these technologies in our pedagogical scholarly research practices now it's only a matter of time and the and those who will do it sooner will obviously have an advantage you know early adopters advantage that's one aspect the second aspect the the concern is that a lot of people don't know how to use these apps. So, for example, there, there's a there's a professor at in Texas A and He suspected that his students were cheating, and it was all over Reddit and Twitter and you know any any social media platform that you can name. And that professor thought his students were cheating, and he opened an account, and he ran all his students' assignments through ChatGPT, asking ChatGPT if it had written it. And ChatGPT's initial, you know, the home screen says that ChatGPT can give you wrong information. Now, this professor obviously ignored this and said that ChatGPT had told it Told him that all the assignments were written by Chat GPT and he failed the whole class. And now the, these are the students, this is the whole senior class that has graduated. They had graduated and now their graduation is being delayed. This is this is just in enormous. And then yesterday I was reading about a lawyer who looked up fake references in, in Chat GPT and then file those fake references in a code file. Could you imagine that? I mean, this is such... And, and you know, sometimes I feel that every week I, I write a thread on, please don't use ChatGPT for... for uh, Don't ask any references. Don't ask ChatGPT for any citations because it will just give you fake references to papers that don't even exist. And. I think that I'm I'm tired of it now, but then I see a post and I'm like, oh my God, people people need to be educated. So so this is the second concern is that, you know, uh, there is going to be a lot of, you know, there's going to be a lot of requirement for AI literacy. There are these apps, but you have to figure out how to use them. They're not, you know, uh, they're not going to, they're not robotic. You know, over- overlords who are going to rule us—they are mere tools. So you need to be able to learn. Uh, you need to be able to have a good understanding of them to use them.
0: I totally resonate with what you're saying, Mr. Doc. When I when I get up to speak about GPT, I it, sometimes I feel like I'm the you know the one who's pushing everybody to think about, you know, what responsible AI looks like and how to use it the best. And sometimes I feel like I'm the one who needs to hit the brakes and say, okay, let's let's not go overboard here. And I think it's really, it only comes from a lot of tinkering and playing around and really understanding what the power and weaknesses of these tools are to be able to, you know, to utilize them for good. But I think you're right. It, it, it starts on the one hand from fear and on the other hand from like, you know, maybe irresponsibility or a way to cut corners. And it's a matter of of teaching people how to use those, those responsibly. So I'm curious about, you know, kind of, you know, when, when I was thinking about how to introduce you, I, I had a, a number of like kind of uh, titles that went through my mind. Um, I mean, academic being the first one, you know, definitely earned your, your, your doctor title, uh, but then also, you know, influencer, uh, consultant, I think a lot of people would probably see you as like, you know, a, a helpful consultant to them, even if you're not, you know, working with them privately um, or content creator. Are there any titles that you kind of prefer or more or less? And how do you kind of um, see yourself? Not that you need to ever put yourself in a box, but how do you, how do you define your, your work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, these, these labels, because I come from a, you know, literary background and the understanding, my, my, my view of the world is very grounded in sort of a, you know, how literature works. So, these are the labels that people use um, back in the 19th century. And even now publishers use these labels because they have to sell something. They have to sell a book. And if they have to sell a book, they need a genre. So the genres of the genre of the novel is right at the intersection of art and commerce. You know, it's equally in equal measure. It is influenced by art and commerce and I would extrapolate the same thing to my own situation that I'm at the intersection of academia and a social media content creator. And uh, I mean, there are many other people also who are creating great, great, really um, wonderful content. One, there's, there's, a, there's a PhD candidate at Harvard, Kareem Karr, who writes about stats. And he writes about stat, uh, statistics in a very easy to understand, you know, manner that people could understand how stats are manipulated to create truth. You know, I can give you a statistical truth, and you'll be like, oh wow, this is based in rigorous research when it could easily be in bad faith, you know. So that's that's a very useful skill in today's world to have, you know. And I don't do any anything with stats, but I, I find that content super useful. I would say I still think of myself as academic. And if I were to brand myself, you know, so to speak, I'll brand myself as a public intellectual um, and social media. I mean, social media content creator is also is also a label that I don't mind. The label of influencer was not something that I used for myself and I don't use for myself even now. This is a label that other people will use for you because when somebody will reach out to you and they'll say, "Wtar, we've we have this app um, that we are working on. Could you maybe uh, write a thread about it?" And so that's one way of influencing, you know, quote unquote, um, public opinion. The other is consultant. Consultant is something that I would consul, consultant is good i had never thought about consult being a consultant but thank you for this insight because um consultant is a good way of branding myself because that then that makes you to be able to charge a lot of money for your work you know so if you're consulting with say a bank you could easily ask them that yeah you're going to work for them but you know you'll charge like two thousand dollars an hour so that's that's a good way of branding myself and speaking of you know um, being a consultant i have been approached by banks non-profits and you know small businesses who are outside of the the traditional academia as you and i would understand you know so a development bank wants me to do a workshop for them because they do a lot of writing and they have people with phds in social sciences who run these statistical analyses and they want to be able to use ai apps and then they thought that hey mushtaq knows a bit about you know academia and a bit about this uh ai apps so let's hire him so i think that that consultant is something that i should put in my linkedin profile <laughs> thank you <laughs>
0: Yeah, my pleasure. I'm happy to speak further off air about how we how 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 to turn some of the wonderful work that you do into into good business for yourself. Because in the end, everything right it has to be sustainable and it has to be something that's that 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 makes sense for you and your family. So so that's that's really quite important. Now, I I, I feel like I could sit here and chat with you all day, but I, I'm respectful of your time. So so I want to skip ahead a little bit and ask you about um, how you know. Twitter can be known uh, also for being a wonderful place for quick and helpful information, but also a place with a lot of vitriol and a lot of trolls, um, uh, you know, who may, you know, be more disruptive and uh, and and give a hard time or, or be counterproductive. How do you kind of approach, do you have that issue, first of all, and have you had issues where people have kind of like, um, you know, taken your words out of context or... Uh, you know, uh, use them in purposes that you wouldn't you wouldn't be happy with. And how do you kind of deal with that, both practically and maybe also emotionally, not to get yourself you know too upset when those things happen?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that is a question that not anybody in the world would have a satisfactory answer to. Not even Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. You know, people who run these companies because. It is so such a fundamental and simple question, and yet it is so difficult to answer. My own approach has been to... So this question has two parts. One is that if there is a troll that is, you know, obviously a troll, somebody is, is, is posting a hateful comment, somebody doesn't follow you, they don't have their photo or they have a fake photo or a fake, you know, made up Twitter handle, non-serious user of Twitter... Uh, and they post a hateful comment. It's very easy to deal with them. You just mute them or block them. You don't have to engage with them. That's not that big of a deal. But the the real challenge for somebody like me is when people, when I write for um I write for ac- academics and people deliberately misunderstand or project their readings onto my work. And that that is often done in bad faith. And so, for example, I'll give you an ex give you an example of a while back. I did a thread on um, how to find journals for your work. So if you're a, if you're starting out, if you're a first year student and you have a paper on the horizon that you want to publish, you know maybe two years down the line, one year down the line, you have no idea how journal submissions work. And I wrote a thread on you know tools that. 10, 12 tools that you can use to find the best possible match. Of course, when you when you you are done with the PhD and you have been in the field um, for a few years, then you automatically know that these are the journals where your work would be a good fit because you've been reading those journals for years. But when you're starting out, you, you're just trying to find your feet. So I did a thread and there's an academic a bunch of academics wrote that there's no need to have this kind of thread, this kind of a thread, because we just know how to publish this. And and I I thought that, hey, you're not understanding what I'm trying to say here. It's not meant for you. You're not the audience of this thread. And I, I used to tell people that, you know, you're not the audience. Now I've stopped doing that because I think my time is not, it's not the best possible utilization of my time but th- there is no doubt about the fact that academics can be very mean people on um, on twitter i wrote a thread on systematic review How, so i, I don't I, I don't do systematic reviews because um, it's a basically um, It's essentially done in biomedical uh, research. And I'm a humanities scholar, but somebody asked me that, hey, Mushtaq, we are developing an app for systematic review. Could you maybe advise us? And I said, let let me see what systematic reviews are. So I read up a, a bit about it and wrote a thread on it that this is what I've learned. And medical librarians, they were really, you know, they were really vicious about it. They were like, hey... Why are you writing about systematic reviews? You're a humanities scholar. No, you should not even write this. And maybe there is a bit of a, a turf, you know, protecting your turf that hey, this is not this is our turf. Don't come on come on it. So maybe that goes on. But that's okay. I mean, it's it's par for the course. It's it comes with the territory.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like you're you're you do a good job of not getting distracted. And I think that's part of. You know, you probably can't be successful if you're going to take everything to heart, and you have to realize that with, you know, with numbers will come all sorts of, you know, unexpected surprises, and you kind of have to stay the course, and you know, and and be able to tune it out at the end of the day as well. Uh, Mishak, yeah. I want to. There, there's yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
1: I I just want to add one one thing quickly. When I started out, uh, there was there's a colleague, Joe Avery on Twitter. Uh, she's in the UK, and she wrote under one of my comment. Uh, okay, so. Another thing that I want to add here is that uh, when I started out on Twitter, um, there's a colleague in in the UK. Her name is Jovan Avery. And I started following her, you know, as soon as I started my Twitter account. She said, she told me um, in response to one of the hateful comments under my threads, she said that, Mushtaq, you don't have, she said, remember two things nobody can tell you how to use your twitter account you are free to post whatever you want to and the second thing is these are not your people if people who post these hateful comments they are not your people and that has stuck with me ever since and i still remind myself every time i read a hateful comment or overly you know criticism for the sake of criticism i read it and then i say to myself they are not my people that's a very useful way of understanding online communities because you're writing for a specific community if somebody is not part of the community and not everybody will be that part of the you know even the biggest creator on social media like uh, mr beast somebody like mr beast will have people who are not part of his community you know and so that should not make any difference to a serious social media content creator. You know, you're know, you writing for your community. It's sort of like preaching to the converted, which sounds counterintuitive, but it makes a lot of sense. You're writing for people who are already convinced that you bring value to the community.
0: Right. Interesting.
1: And I think you can probably
0: say that that community can be made up not just of interests, but also of values, right? Right. So if someone is not acting in accordance with the values of that community and the respect that is part of that environment and culture that you've built online, then they're not part of the community.
1: That is that is correct.
0: Fantastic. All right. Here's what I want to do, Mushtak, because we've, we're have we already at about time, but I, I, I want to get the last section of this interview was going to be about practical um, things that researchers can do. And I don't want to skip out on that. Here's what I want to recommend. Are you up for doing a lightning round? I'll ask you some questions. We'll try to do up to 30 second answers and we'll just run through them quickly. Does that work for you? Sure. Let's see. Okay, let's try it. We'll experiment. We'll experiment. We'll see how it goes. All right. So number one, um, tell us something about the things you've noticed about themes or content that works particularly well or does not work well.
1: Yeah, how to's, as far as I'm concerned, if you tell people academics how to do XYZ using a tool ABC, that content will work very well. Content that doesn't work well, um, if you write personal stories, and I sometimes do that, um, you know, that content doesn't work as well. But hey, sometimes you you write not for, you know, for your readers, but for your own self. So that doesn't do well in terms of numbers.
0: Got it. Um. How can scientists do a better job of communicating their research, both within academia as well as to the general public?
1: Oh, that's a great question. You, uh, I can, you know, <laughs> people need to write books on it. I think one of the ways, but I, I will keep it very brief, the most important and fundamental thing for any scientist to wrap their head around or, you know, so a natural scientist or a humanities scholar is that is not to look down upon readers, general readers, not to say that these people are maybe dumb or they don't they won't understand my research. This is a very this is like a cardinal sin. It's not that they can can't understand. It's just that our job it's our job to make the the scholarship palatable for as many people as possible. You know, I think it it was Feynman who said that if you cannot explain a concept to a thirteen year old or a twelve year old, it means you haven't understood it perfectly yourself.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Um, what would you say to more introverted scholars who maybe are afraid to expose themselves online?
1: Ah, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I am some somewhat of an somewhat of an introvert in in specific sense of in a specific specific sense of the word because you know English is not my first language and writing in English is you know like putting myself out there for you know I feel somebody's looking over my shoulder you know and you know there's a constant sense of being judged by native speakers but introverted scholars I would say that you know, being able to communicate your thoughts in a manner that you feel comfortable is a very important skill. And you can, you can start low stakes, start really low stakes. If you're an introverted person, and you don't want to put yourself out there initially, you can go to Quora. A lot of people have asked questions there, you can create a simple profile, and you can answer their questions, you know, you can offer your considered opinion. And if what you have to say, if that resonates with other, then you can, you know, um, you can think about putting yourself out there in a much more explicit manner, but start small.
0: I like that. Answering specific questions on specific forum. That's great. Um, all right. And maybe most importantly, uh, for those who, for, for those few researchers that don't yet follow you on social media, um, what's the best way to, uh, to, to give you a follow and be able to consume your content?
1: So you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is at Mushtaq Bilal PhD. M U S H T A Q B I L A L PhD, and the same uh, handle I have on LinkedIn. So I'm actually on Twitter and LinkedIn at the moment. I'm thinking of going to Facebook, but there's only so many so many hours in a day, and so much you can do.
0: I, I don't recommend. we can talk about this, but I, I think I think you're in exactly where you should be. And I don't I don't know that you even need to get to Facebook. I think <laughs> yeah, you have thanks, done, thanks, done a great job both those places. So brilliant. Uh Mushjak, this has been really, really informative and wonderful. Um, I think it really sheds a light um, on a what I think will be a increasingly mo- significant and important um, venue and means and medium uh, for having these discussions. And I think you're right in that the early adopters and folks who at least um, educate themselves, play around with these tools, you don't have to fall in love with each and every one. You don't even have to use them, um, but who understand the value of both the modern tools, but also the modern venues um, will will have a leg up and will really be able to, to to, to flourish in 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 ways that they couldn't have imagined prior. So Sha, thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your knowledge with us today and I look forward to continuing these conversations down the line.
1: Thank you Avi thank you for inviting me it was um, it was wonderful having a conversation with you and uh, I wish you the best.